0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world for the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're talking about Trump handling or Trump tickling or Trump influencing. Anyway, it's been a bumper week of, of Trump stories. We have seen the two Rival leaders of the free world show up in in Washington to meet with President Trump. First, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, and then Angela Merkel, the German chancellor. And while the German chancellor was there, the U.S. also announced that there will be a visit of President Trump to the U.K., to London, in July, on July the 13th, a much-awaited event. And we thought this would be a good occasion to think about how different leaders are engaging with Donald Trump, how successful they're being. And I think the E3, Britain, France and Germany, in a way present three very different paradigms for thinking about Trump handling. The, the first out of the gate was, uh, was the British approach. Theresa May rushed to Washington uh, with almost indecent haste after Trump was elected. And... Uh, the British traditional approach is to try and hug America close. There was a lot of hand-holding involved rather than, um, uh, rather than hugging. Um, but I think the, the general consensus was that, that she got burnt as a, as a uh, result of this excess of intimacy. And uh, the domestic backlash was so great that it was then almost impossible to have any relationship with, with Donald Trump. So that didn't work so well. The the second kind of approach was uh, Angela Merkel, who was quite frosty from the beginning and made this famous declaration about how she believed that the transatlantic relationship can continue on the basis of of common values. And her sort of teacherly frostiness um, meant that she went for, I think, five months without having a single conversation with, with Donald Trump. And Emmanuel Macron uh, has shown a kind of interesting synthesis in this, as in so many other areas between the two approaches. On the one hand, lots of hugging and kissing, actually, on this trip uh, were involved, but also a degree of of, of lecturing and and teaching through his speeches to to Congress. And in a way, for me, as as someone who lived through the early noughties and saw Tony Blair trying to handle George Bush, there was a sort of degree of... um, Uh, familiarity of this scene of of trying to watch uh, a European leader riding the tiger of a a slightly feral American president. But to help us make sense of both what happened during the visits, but also of how much uh, the diplomatic practices actually have an impact on substance, or how much of this is about structure, we have an all-star cast. From Paris, we have Manuel Lafont-Anouille, Abnui, who is uh, the head of our office, but is also someone who uh, was based in Washington as an American, sorry, as an American, as a French diplomat um, and has seen lots of uh, leaders coming through the capital and has been involved in preparing for a lot of these visits. And from the other side of the divide, we have Jeremy Shapiro, our research director, who was also in the State Department and I think, probably was involved in in preparing the American side for a lot of these uh, state visits. Um, And he's also written a rather great piece uh, in the Financial Times, comparing the the Macron and the the Macron approaches, and we'll hear more about that shortly. Um, But given that it sort of started with, with Macron and his visit, maybe, Manuel, you can tell us what people made of the visit in France, how they sort of dissected it, and, and also what the uh, consensus was about what had been achieved once uh, he had returned to the safety of French soil.
1: Well, it's been, it's been a bit easier for Macron than for, um, for Theresa May and Angela Merkel for a number of reasons. Uh, first, he was elected after Trump, so he didn't have to shift from uh, thinking that Clinton would be elected to adjusting to Trump. Second, he didn't have an election in front of him, as uh, Angela Merkel had uh, at the beginning of the, of the Trump administration. And also, his, uh, his, there was kind of domestic indifference on the way he dealt with Trump, unlike in the UK. As you say, there was a lot of fuss in the UK when they talked about uh, a Trump visits to London. While um, when Macron invited Trump for Bastille Day, for the military parade on Bastille Day, uh, on the uh, on the anniversary of the U.S. joining uh, the Allies uh, side on World War One, obviously there was a lot of uh, surprises and. Uh, not not a lot of uh, enthusiasm, but there was no, no not so much criticism, etc. So Macron has, has had a lot of free hands in dealing with Trump. And since the beginning, when they first met on the side of a NATO uh, meeting, he's been very familiar with him, uh, very uh, displaying a lot of familiarity, maybe overplaying familiarity, indeed, uh, and trying to play... Uh, discard of a good relation, uh, personal relation, which doesn't prevent from telling uh, things uh, as they are and disagreements as they are. And the fact is that in spite of this very good uh, personal relationship or at least that's how the two leaders frame it because Trump is saying exactly the same uh, from his side about Macron um, the the disagreements have added up um, withdrawing from the climate uh, Paris deal uh, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, uh, threatening to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, now you have the trade uh, issues, the tariffs, etc., uh, etc. Et and one of the major questions uh, beyond the <laughs> discussion on the so-called bromance, as the U.S. has put it, has been. Okay, very well. But what has Macron brought back from from DC? And and I think that's one point on which I agree with uh, with Jeremy's piece uh, in the EFT, is that so far, at least, it's hard to say that this very good personal relationship has brought so much in terms of, uh, of policy gains. So,
0: um, you know, it'd be interesting to kind of think about how much these things work and also to see whether Um, it is possible to to do what Macron's been trying to do, which is, you know, on the one hand, to show this kind of high level of, of personal intimacy to say very nice things about Trump on Fox News and then to be very rude about him and his policies um, in Congress and, and in the New York Times and other more kind of cerebral uh, media. But maybe we should also compare it with what, what Angela Merkel was doing, because that was a lot more kind of sober. Jeremy, we don't have any Germans here, but maybe you could talk a bit about how you, how, how you saw the contrast between the Macron and the Merkel things.
2: Well, the contrast is very readily apparent in the pictures. Um, you know, Donald Trump uh, t- is not very famous for having good relationships with powerful women. Uh, and uh, Stormy
0: Daniels for a while, while it lasted. Uh,
2: yeah, I think the key, the, the key was that she wasn't <laughs> so powerful. Um, now that she's become powerful, he doesn't have a good relationship with her. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, Angela Merkel was always going to have a much tougher hill to climb than Emmanuel Macron for for the reasons that Manuel uh, mentions, but also because of the difficult relations that the Trump sees with Germany because of its lack of defense spending and because of its very large trade surplus with the United States. So you see in, in the meetings, for all of these reasons, a, um, a, a real distance between the two. The, the meetings are not uh, as physically intimate, which uh, frankly is not a picture that I want to see anyway but uh, there, there's, a, there's a very different physical uh, relationship and uh, the press is much worse. Uh, uh, you know, It's all about how uh, Macron and Trump get on so well and both seem to benefit from that press and Merkel is, is seen as um, not doing very well with the president and that's somehow bad. What's intriguing about this to me is that the result, roughly speaking, is the same. They both aren't getting anything from Trump. Um, And so I wonder whether this is all much ado about nothing and that this focus on the good meeting as if that is the measure of whether you have an effective relationship with the United States or with the U.S. president is really misplaced. And we should be thinking about other things besides whether they touch each other on camera. Is
0: that actually true? I mean, some Germans would say that, you know, they put a lot of work into trying to get these uh, exemptions for European companies from the, from the tariffs um, on steel and that, I mean, it was only a temporary set of exemptions, but that was a result partly of, of, of kind of quite aggressive German diplomacy.
2: Uh, maybe I'm not being clear. What I mean is that the, this, this, uh, the, the question of whether you have a, good a, a pictorially good meeting doesn't make a difference to the outcome. I think that uh, the French and the Germans have had some successes and some failures. With the Trump administration, uh, but but I think that the difference between their relationship has nothing to do with the issues that we focus on about whether the about whether these what le- what the strategy that these leaders take for handling Trump is, and I think that that gets at this sort of uh, this something that's that's almost always true, but it's particularly true about Trump, which is that it doesn't matter whether you're friends with him. I mean, ask people who used to be friends with him. Ask Jeff Sessions, who basically pioneered the art of getting of flattering Trump, and is now humiliated by him on almost a daily basis on Twitter. Ask Chris Christie, who did everything but bring Trump hamburgers during the um, during the presidential campaign, and was actually rumored to have brought him hamburgers, uh, and who who was fired from the transition two days into the uh, two days after the election. Trump has a history of betraying his friends. Uh, Assumedly, they were never his friends. Uh, He he, uh, doesn't even seem to remember the bonhomie that you you have in these meetings uh, 15 minutes after he leaves. He had a great meeting with Theresa May, as you pointed out, in the first month of his administration. And while she was on the plane home, he signed his immigration ban that was a huge domestic problem for her uh, without even telling her a few hours before that he was going to. So Manuel, there's a huge amount of effort put in
0: by the Team Macron into building up this personal relationship. Presumably they don't agree with Jeremy. Why do they think that these relationships do matter?
1: Well, I, I, I would agree with Jeremy uh, if Jeremy's argument was that the, the media and even the experts' comments have focused way too much on these displays of familiarity and way not enough on the substance. Uh, But I don't agree with the fact that Macron's strategy uh, is flattering. Um, I I don't think there was uh, so much flattering. Uh, Jeremy uh, knows these things enough to recognise the difference between flattery and just being diplomatic, as you behave in uh, some of those instances. And I think... Flattery is certainly not the, the, the major argument if, uh, and, and even less the only argument that Macron has used. The, the one thing that is very interesting, if you listen carefully to what he says uh, and pre- particularly read the, um, the speech that he made in Congress, he speaks to the US much more than he speaks to Trump. Um, he speaks to the US when he speaks to Trump and he, he for instance, very well... Explains why he invited Trump, not because he likes Trump or because Trumps is a is a good pal or a buddy uh, on on July 14 uh, for the military parade on Bastille Day last year, but he invited him because that was the anniversary of the U.S. joining the Allies in World War One, and he speaks even sometimes above Trump or beyond Trump, and that was uh, particularly interesting in this speech at Congress where he. he repeated an argument that he had already used when Trump uh, withdrew from the Paris Agreement on Climate, uh, where basically he called on US companies, US foundations, US NGOs, US local governments to continue uh, to work within the framework and within the spirit of the agreement, even though the US were not part of it or were in the process of withdrawing uh, right now and hoping that sometime, meaning uh, after Trump, the US will come back. And that that's not just it. He, he also, it, that I, there's been a lot of uh, discussion here too, uh, Mark. You mentioned the parallel with Blair and Bush. There's been a lot of discussion or is Macron doing the same with uh, Trump than Blair was doing with Bush? But I think one big difference is that precisely Macron does not agree on a lot of these issues and he says it. And as you say, even lectures, uh, the, the, the US administration on climate, on international law, on, on, on the idea that when you've signed an agreement, you need to stick it with was, it. I
0: have to say, it was quite a, a masterclass in trickery, that speech, though. It was genius. So there were like three or four moments when he managed to get standing ovations for things which were the opposite of what everyone in Congress believed in. There was one moment where he was talking about multilateralism, and he managed to get everyone to, to give him a standing ovation for multilateralism, saying, you invented multilateralism. It's up to America to save it. And there was another part about the Paris climate deal where he talked about making the, the planet great again. There's no planet B. They're all things which, which go directly against Trump policy. And he somehow phrased it in a way. And then on the Iran nuclear deal, it was a particularly genius one where he says, Iran will never have nuclear weapons, not now, not in five years, not in 10 years, never. And then he says, but we still need the JCPOA um, and got them to carry on applauding through that that moment. So there were lots of, but I was sort of wondering whether if you were an American congressman who was tricked into giving him standing ovations for four or five things you didn't believe in, whether that would convince you that this was a good idea or whether you just feel this was another perfidious Frenchman coming along with this kind of overly subtle things and, and living up to national stereotypes.
1: Mark, that's maybe the last argument uh, or the last point of what uh, Macron has been trying to do also, which is one of the rules of diplomacy is you need to behave at the way where uh, that that so that the messenger doesn't kill the message, that the message is heard and you can't blame the messenger. You have to face the message. And so. Exactly this kind of of speech that he made at Congress. Uh, there's another example where he say, "We wrote the rules on trade and so we should follow them rather than raise tariff, uh, raise tariffs uh, unilaterally is is also part of a bigger thing that he, he doesn't expect much from from that visit. He said it at the end of it he said he said to the press. I don't think that President Trump is going to stay in the in the Iran deal, and so what is what does that mean? That mean it's also about shifting the blame or anticipating the blame game. At least, there is the idea that. With all these disagreements that are accumulating at some points, the U.S. will tell Europeans, it's your fault, you didn't behave properly, you didn't take us uh, seriously, you didn't listen when we warned you, you, were, uh, f- you went far too, too close to the Iranians and didn't realise uh, the importance of the ballistic missiles or the uh, regional destabilisation. And so Macron is telling the things so that... Uh, if there are discussions, you can't say, well, it's normal that we disagree with Europeans or it's normal that Europeans want to stick with the Iran deal, even if the US uh, have withdrawn, because these are Europeans and they hate us and they hate our president. I'm not saying this is the only concern, but you have this kind of broader approach of Macron, which is actually quite comprehensive and does also include this element of uh of not expecting too much, but being careful about what the blame game is going to be if things go worse. So,
0: Jeremy, maybe because you've been arguing for ages that, because I think we all take it, your point about how Fox News, pictures and stuff like that, the tabloid elements maybe don't matter that much. But maybe if we go behind that, you've been arguing for ages that rather than rushing to Washington all on their own and looking at their special relationships, So, it has to be said, Macron did talk about a special relationship, which makes him... Um, uh, uh, slightly Blair-like, in fact, slightly like every single European leader, according to your <laughs> original power <order>, audit, <laughs> that hopes to have a special relationship with Probably the US. 14 out of 25. <laughs> um, but to what extent were they doing what you want them to do, which is rather than going for a kind of special relationship and being kind of nice, actually showing a degree of toughness, working out what European interests are, having um, a mix of the, the kind of iron, sorry, what is it? The iron fist and the velvet
2: glove. Um. Well, I think it, it, it was a mixed bag on that. I mean, I, I agree with, uh, with Manuel that, that Macron has stuck to his principles, broadly speaking. And I think that that's, that's good and it's useful um, in the relationship. But I, I think that the, there is a cost to the way that, uh, that Macron treats Trump. I think it's, and I think it's important to understand this. I think what Macron has realized about Trump, which uh, is that you can, ha- you can have a good meeting with him even if you um, are sticking to your principles elsewhere and disagreeing with him elsewhere because he doesn't really pay attention to what you do that much elsewhere. And he's very, he's very focused on, uh, when you're in the room, finding agreement with you. And so if you're, if you're very good to him in the room, if you make sure that there is a lot of uh, shiny objects and military parades around, uh, he will smile and hug you a lot. Um, and that that creates a, an, the kind of optic uh, that you want. Uh, I, I'm sure that Manuel is right, that Macron doesn't expect that that will achieve anything. But the point that I'm making is that it actually is a problem. Uh, and the reason it's a problem is because uh, of the way that Trump understands negotiations, you know this is in his book. Admittedly, he didn't write the book, but I assume he read it. Uh, and what it says is that what the person who comes and offers up things like this is demonstrating weakness, is showing that he has a weak negotiating hand. And when the Europeans come in with this type of uh, strategy, where they each show up ad seriatum. And where they, uh, uh, and particularly in Macron's case, where they're very anxious to make sure that he feels good about himself, what, what the message that that conveys to him is that he doesn't really have to pay much attention to them.
0: So, what we should all do is enter the Kim Jong un, um, yeah. I mean, I think the school of, because dip- he has had a big win out of this, hasn't he? He's both managed to get nuclear weapons and be recognized as that, and now Trump's going to come and meet him
2: gone kind of halfway across the world to um... I think that that's right. I mean what, what you see is that what matters with Trump is not whether you have a good meeting in terms of policy outcomes. It's not so whether it's you have a good rocket. meeting. It's not whether you flatter, flatter him. it's to the opposite. It's whether you demonstrate leverage and demonstrate toughness. That's what he does to other people. So you should assume that that's what works with him. And so it doesn't seem to me uh, uh, that the, the macron strategy, actually conveys to the president that these principled stands that Macron is taking in the Congress or elsewhere really matter that much. I think in that sense, Merkel's, from a policy perspective, Merkel's approach is probably better. Admittedly, it hasn't achieved that much, but as I said, she has a harder uh, hill to climb, and also, of course, she doesn't have her key partners with her, uh, principally uh, Theresa May, frankly, but uh, also because of this, uh, strateg- this distinct strategy in engaging with Trump, she doesn't, in a certain sense, have Macron, even though she does have him on the substance. Well, it,
1: it, arguably, um, there, there is not so much, that, I, I don't think there's so much contrast between the two. Again, I think the circumstances of the first months that they each had in handling Trump I've put them on a different path, but they pursue the same goals. They agree on how to pursue them. Uh, and one important thing I, uh, I think that happened before their respective trips to D.C. is precisely that they did not behave as rivals, as you said, uh, Mark, in your introduction, but they did coordinate. And they coordinated again uh, after the, um, their respective visits with uh, Theresa May for the UK, especially on, on Iran um and and the, the circumstances of a visit where you spend 3 hours with the president or state visits uh is obviously different but this is this is diplomacy this is this is the uh the uh protocoler uh, window dressing uh for the rest i i don't think that macron has been showing any weakness or again has been trying to to flatter and accept uh trump's dominance or even Uh, try to play the dominance game. Um, Again, the the familiarity between the two leaders is reciprocal and so I don't say, I don't think it says much of of Macron's specificity that they've done uh, done it that way. On Iran, Macron is uh, uh, quite uh, clear still. On Syria, he's been telling uh, Trump that he's doing a mistake if he wants to withdraw his troops from Syria and that. Uh, nothing is uh, over and it's been uh, uh, playing much more uh, along the lines of what Matisse said in the US administration as uh, rather than uh, what uh, Trump says. On trade, well, anyway, this is a EU issue. And so um, Germany and France basically uh, see the same way. And this is not just about EU interests in terms of uh, uh, the, the tariffs imposed by uh, the US on, uh, on European exports to the US, but it's also more broadly about multilateralism and uh, the, the importance of negotiating through the World Trade Organization. And Merkel and Macron are saying the same thing on that. And whether it's on Iran or whether it's on climate, Macron has been pretty clear. If you go out, we'll stay in. Uh, we, we don't agree with you and we think you're doing a mistake. And actually, we think on climate, he's been saying it explicitly a repeated number of times, we think the US will come back and we think we have other US interlocutors that we can still work with. So I'm, I'm not so sure that the contrast between the two is uh, is that important. And I, I'm pretty uh, satisfied with the way that precisely for once, it wasn't I'm going to to play my cards so that I am the privileged uh, interlocutor for Europe, the, but there was this uh, important coordination display both beforehand and after the visits, which I don't think has happened so much when you have such a difficult agenda with uh, with the White House.
0: I mean, you could say, Jeremy, there it's like a perfect division of labour because Macron obviously loves all this kind of schmoozing and and um, you know uh, kissing and um, uh, that. Whole the theatricality of, of the visit, so he's kind of taking one for the team, um, and Angela Merkel is there to kind of provide a bit of backup and additional heft. There's a complete uh, agreement on the core messages, whether it's on trade, on Iran, etc., and, and we're not sharing any. Uh, uh, kind of major divisions, and even Theresa May has now finally come on board, so we end with uh, quite a, an authentic acting out of different characters' behaviour but with a single set of messages. It's a, a European orchestra rather than a cacophony.
2: Yeah, it's a good cop, bad cop routine. Uh, I don't really think the good cop, bad cop routine is all that helpful. Look I think that the, the messages are reasonably well coordinated and that's super important. Um, I just think that the way that Macron approached it has undermined that a bit. Uh, and I think that, that you know, what we're confronted with is a lack of results. Um, and I think that the, the, what, what the message that this sends to the president, and you hear this in, his, in the way that he talks about these things, is that France and Germany are separate, even though they have the same substance. Remember this isn't a president that really focuses on the substance. Uh, he believes that he has a tremendous amount of leverage in the European relationship, and that's why he treats Germany particularly so badly, and that's why he complains about defense spending and all of these things. And I think that uh, the, it, it's good to be united on substance. That's certainly important. Um, but when you come with, these, with this sort of weird good cop, bad cop routine, or I guess buddy cop, dowdy cop routine, then what you're essentially saying to a guy like Trump is, yeah, you know, I'm saying these things, but I'm your friend, uh, and, and actually I'm doing that because I'm quite weak. And so, you know, you don't really need to worry about the messages that we're all trying to give you. And I think you see that in, in Trump's reaction to Europe. Um, I, I think it does require a very tough negotiating stance, which I think the Europeans aren't used to doing with the United States, and it requires a different kind of... Of unity, I think Trump, because of his uh, because of his policy positions, were so at a- at odds with what Europe wants, has already been reasonably effective at creating um, greater unity. And I think you see that it, that it, as as Manuel was talking about that it has improved in the last year or so. Uh, I just think it, it has to go further and it has to extend into the into the, the nature of these meetings. Otherwise, they're not really going to convey the message that uh, Europe has leverage that it's willing to use.
0: I think the next two or three weeks will show whether there are results or not. I mean, we've seen that the uh, exemptions on trade have been rolled over until July, but that's not very long. And the Iran nuclear deal has got a, a, a D-day of the 12th of May. Maybe that won't be a, a clear resolution of that either. But no, I'm
2: sure we'll still be having this debate uh, in, the, in the months to come. That's the good thing about international politics. It never ends. It's like an employment program. And
0: the world in 30 minutes as well.
2: (laughs) And I'm not sure that if if we want
1: to measure the the result of these uh, respectives or coordinated strategy, I'm not sure that waiting for May 12 and the decision on the Iran deal is really uh, um, honest
0: I think you're right. It's a bit like what Jared and Lai said about the, yeah. the French Revolution.
1: The likelihood of getting a, a good result on that are very low. But, but precisely, if we, have, if we don't have a, such a good result on May 12th, then this kind of uh, a coordination uh, and the ability of, the, of Europeans to actually stick to their strategic purpose and stay united precisely will be put to the test. And that will be a much uh, stronger test uh, than the one that we've uh, seen so far.
0: So come back and join us on May the 12th or maybe 13th two, for, yeah. our, for for the next round of this discussion. Um, in the meantime, we have one more thing to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Manuel, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
1: Uh, it's a book about uh, international law. Uh, that's a good subject uh, related to this podcast by uh, Mireille Delmas-Marty, who is... Uh, a very good uh, lawyer in France, uh, but also a very good uh, thinker about the role of law. Uh, and, and she has written this book, which is called "Aux Quatre Vents du Monde, The Four Winds of the World. I don't know how you translate that really in, uh, in English. Uh, but it's very good about how you have a globalised system where the idea, the notion of a rules-based world order is put to the test, not just because of the uh, disregard that states can have for... Uh, international law, although that plays uh, a big role, of course, but also because you have a lot of different corners and different kind of laws that do not uh, coordinate and, uh, and um, add up uh, so well. That, that's a very thought-provoking
2: book. Great. What about you, Jeremy? Uh, I'm reading a novel. I guess I don't uh, spend my free time as profitably as Manuel does, but I'm, uh, I'm reading a novel by Tom Rockman called uh, The Italian Teacher, which is the a, a story of a, um, of a Canadian boy who grows up in, in Rome and his, uh, his relationship with his famous artist father, who's sort of incredibly uh, selfish and self-absorbed, and, and what that does to his... Uh, to his life and to his career. Um, and it's, uh, it's really depressing to me actually so far, but it's a beautifully written book. Um, and uh, I'm only about halfway through it, so I'm hoping it'll get more cheery toward the end.
0: Okay, and I'll, I'll do a bit of log rolling before I do my thing. So it's Jeremy Shapiro's amazing piece in the Financial Times. Headline is Flattering Donald Trump Reap's Scant Reward for Macron and Malcolm. There's even more stuff than you've heard in the podcast already, though some familiar themes for podcast listeners. And I went into a bit more detail on how to save the Iran nuclear deal, looking at what Britain, France and Germany can do on that. In a recent um, uh, column I've written called How to Save the Iran Nuclear Deal, (laughs) or How Europe Can Save the Iran Nuclear Deal. Um, But my recommendation... Sorry? ceiling title. I know, I thought it was great. It yeah. took me a long time to come up with that one. Um, but uh, I, we are in a year of, uh, of anniversaries and a uh, particularly important anniversary, I think it's the 50th anniversary of the events of 1968. And there are lots of great pieces about that. But I particularly enjoyed reading a uh, uh, discussion between... Daniel Cohn-Bendit, formerly known as Danny Le Rouge when he was a student leader in, in, in France in 1968, and Klaus Leggevi, who is a German sociologist, uh, which first appeared, I think, in German, because I'm pretty sure I read it in, in a German newspaper first, But it was, I, or unless it's a separate one. But anyway, it's in the New York Review of Books um, called 1968, Power to the Imagination. And it is uh, quite a thoughtful reflection from people who are at the heart of those events on what their significance is 50 years later. We'll put links up to all of these uh, books and articles on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do tweet about it, write about it on your Facebook page or ours. But above all, uh, head straight to your ratings and reviews page on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast and give us a review because it really helps to let other people know about the podcast but for now from manuel lafon jeremy shapiro and myself mark leonard it's goodbye the researcher of ecfr's podcast is jonathan hakenbroich and our editor is katarina botel Atsunaro.